Hello, and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel, Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with a very special guest, my dear friend and former arch nemesis, Claudia Morales. You said former arch nemesis. I wasn't going to put that even in the tweet that I posted (laughs) for this, but that is the word that I use. Yes. So Claudia, like I said, dear friend, forged in the fires of decade-old Glee fandom drama. I think it's probably for the best that Chris Colfer is out of it now and writing young adult books, much (laughs) like the young adult book we're discussing today. And that's my segue, (laughs) which is Little Women. So Claudia, you are my arch nemesis, but you're also a writer and a digital content specialist based in Brooklyn. You bylined in MTV News under the great Jessica Hopper. I'm so excited to have you on the show, especially because you're new to Little Women. You're reading it for the show, which is a huge honor. Yeah, I'm about as new as you can be to Little Women. Do you want to tell me about your relationship to Little Women more broadly? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this a lot ever since you reached out to me for this podcast because it is retroactively surprising to me that I never read it myself. But I think part of it is that I am an immigrant. I came to the United States when I was like five or six from Honduras. And when I think of books like Little Women or in general, like let's say 19th century-ish depictions of America, I had piled all of them into the same little group. And in thinking about that, I looked up the only one of that group in my head that I've actually read, which was in elementary school, which was Sarah Plain and Tall, which I am now finding out was written in the late 90s. <laughs> that was a 1800s, for some reason, mail order bride narrative told from the perspective of the daughter in the household. So in my brain, that Little Women and then Little House on the Prairie, maybe just because it also said little in it, were like all kind of one and the same. And I thought of them as very, somehow bonnets and wagons are involved and that's all I know. I never really (laughs) read them. And then I heard a lot of incredible things about the Greta Gerwig adaptation and that has been my back burner list to watch for a little bit, but it was around the time that that came back into prominence that I have slowly been learning more and more tidbits about Little Women, counter to my misconception about it. A lot of it from you, just like catching glimpses of all of the queer, not even queer reading, because I think the more that I find out about it, it is just overtly a queer narrative. That and also just bits and pieces of the sisterhood driving the story and all of that. And especially now reading this chapter and getting, I feel like this is such a good, I don't know if this is different from all of the other chapters on either side of chapter number 12, my only exposure to the story, a little slice of life survey of each of their dispositions. And it's so immediately charming to me that I'm like, I have to read the whole thing. So already very taken with it. And I'm almost glad that I didn't have time to watch the movie Hmm. or the chapter or before this podcast, because it feels like just the coolest little keyhole look into this whole world. As I said, it's such an honor that you took the plunge for this show for the very first time. And also very exciting that you haven't seen the movie that you're truly coming into it. Like I haven't seen this through anyone's eyes, but my own. Mm -hmm. 
That's very cool. And it's interesting the point you brought up about how you came to the United States as a young person and maybe you didn't see much in Little Women or Little House on the Prairie to relate to in your own experiences. I would say I probably thought that I didn't have much to relate to. The more that I learned about all of those stories, reading this chapter, thinking about it retrospectively, I think there is just a lot of universal experience packed in there. But more of the reason that I never got into them was because there wasn't the cultural context for me. When I think about Little Women or the way that I must have seen it as an elementary school and middle school reader, it felt as foreign to me as when we were reading, did you ever read the Tripod trilogy? It was like a sci-fi precursor, not precursor, but some of the War of the Worlds adaptations were more taken from that. Literal aliens to me, (laughs) but big robot earth invader narrative to me felt as familiar as things like Little Women just because it it wasn't the sort of thing that my parents and my friends' parents had as cultural touchstones the same way that it was only until I hit my 20s really that I started going back and getting some of those cultural touchstones. I'm looking at a poster of Bruce Springsteen, like Bruce Springsteen, like (laughs) Ghostbusters, like Star Wars, things like that. It just never was an organic part of the storytelling conversation around me. Yeah, for sure. I can see that a lot. Something I've been thinking about a lot making this podcast is I'm surprised by, as you said, even just reading this on its surface, it is an overtly queer book. It's very easy for a white queer person like me to see this and see myself in it. But despite it being a book set in the Civil War, and despite Lou Alcott having been a very devoted abolitionist, there's one mention of Black Americans here. It's said at the very end that when Joe opens a school, she accepts a, a biracial student. But that's the only mention of Black Americans in this book. There's no discussion of what the Civil War meant for Black Americans. The discussion of race as it existed in that day is limited to the portrayal of Lori, who was Italian-American, looking at the prejudices he was dealing with, which is less legible, I think, for modern audiences, certainly. Something I'm really excited about is that in recent years, we're sort of seeing, for as much as Little Women has been translated and published in different languages around the world, we're now seeing English language adaptations where the March sisters are portrayed as being people of color. On our podcast art, we have um, yeah, yeah, the cover art of Bethany C. Morrow's book, So Many Beginnings, which is a Little Women retelling set in a freed person's colony where the March family is the Black family. I also really love, there's a middle grade novel called More to the Story where Joe March becomes Jamila Mirza and they're a Muslim American family. So there's more and more stuff popping up like that. The story of Little Women in cultural context. The first line of Little Women is Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents. And More to the Story, the opening line is this is the worst Ramadan ever. So it's like really (laughs) like, yeah. Yeah. So that's something I'm I'm excited about and seeing more of. And especially for your younger kids who can see themselves in these classic characters and be like, okay, this is relevant to my life. Now you've you've only read chapter 12, so you may not have the best idea, but do you have a good sense of which March sister you are? And for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister. It'll be interesting to see how this changes when I do go back and read the book and watch the movie and fully immerse myself in the story. Off the bat, I felt like an instant kinship with Joe, I think just because we're both, if I'm not mistaken, because maybe I misread this, but we're both the eldest sisters in our families. And a lot of my immediate kinship just came from the letter that her mom writes her and the adorable little male scene in the beginning where she 
is really moved by her mom seeing her efforts to just keep herself contained because later there's reference to her having a short temper and I was like yep me too and the kind of balancing of that and of feeling finally recognized for the efforts in trying to be a good girl and also just a good older sister with having a temper and snapping here and there and her spin on the story when they're playing rigmarole how she even with all of that responsibility on her shoulders is also just a big goofball and tries to take things in that direction I think I also I think Meg is the one who takes a spookier spin on the story if I remember correctly and that one I was like I need to read more about this character because I feel like that could be a competitor but for now I would say Jeff. I feel like that tracks for you certainly Meg is definitely very into like the gothic romance this is not the first time Meg launches into like a full-blown masked romance which is very it's, it's very Claudia so I can see that um, do you have a, a sister that you identify with I feel a definite Joe increasingly Lori I feel like I printed on Lori like a baby bird in my work on this but no I, I feel like I'm I'm definitely a Joe. I'm a Kit carriage and Kit is a total Joe as well. So it it just tracks. Yeah. So Meg is actually the eldest sister. Okay. Um, Joe is, yeah, Joe is second oldest, but Joe definitely has bossy energy. So that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, Joe, second oldest, Meg, oldest, and Meg on the precipice of romance in this chapter as well. So <laughs> do you want to recap what happens in chapter 12, Camp Lawrence? Yeah, I feel like there may be parts of it that are lost on me because of That's my... Okay familiarity but basically they start off just with a little play at mail delivery which I was just immediately taken by as my very first introduction to these characters and this family the domestic whimsy of it all one of the very few things that I knew going in was that Beth is ill and that's a big through line of the story and it brings the family together and leads to them spending more time at home and just seeing the cheer and the warmth with which they seem to be navigating that with little things like fake mail and really sweet letters was a really, really cool way to be introduced to that. They receive an invitation to a picnic from Lori and there's not much convincing that needs to be done, but they get permission from their mom. And as soon as the permission is given, they go into a little bit of a frenzy preparing for it, making sure that everything is set up at home. And then I really like the little mention of them fixing their hair and putting on cold cream and one of the sisters spending some extra time with a doll to apologize for the, <laughs> um, the imminent departure and then they head out to the picnic I think on boats and when they get there there's this little bit of again because I have such limited exposure to stories set in earlier America it's even now if not surprising just cool to see instances of characters written in this time dealing with things like social anxiety and worrying about how they come off or disliking other characters dispositions so there is a lot of all that some of Lori's friends who are there are I think British yes yeah. yeah yeah and there is a little bit of the dynamic there where 
there are some things that may not be intended to be snide, but are definitely received as snide or have that attitude behind them. And then some of the March sisters take offense to that. And there's a little bit of trying to prove themselves back and forth, especially with Kate, I want to say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a lot of game playing, some cheating scandals within those games. I was really delighted to run into uh, Truth, I think they call it. The evidence of how far back things like the put a finger down game or whatever go was really funny. It felt like at points it had to me the cadence of a sleepover, even though it was just a very mixed aged group outside having a picnic. They play a game called rigmarole, which I had never heard that as a game. It makes so much sense now having used that word in the conversational context, seeing this connection. But I thought that was a really clever and funny way to demonstrate a lot of the different characters' outlooks and temperaments and stuff. And that doesn't end the way that a story would end, I guess, because one of the characters is like, I'm not going to play this. Towards the end, as they're heading back, there's some flirting going on and a little bit of more like discussion of the social dynamics. And it ends on the note of Kate being like, you know, once you get to know them, these American kids are quite all right. (laughs) (laughs) World peace is achieved. Mm -hmm. That was an excellent recap. Thank you so much, Claudia. You really understood the assignment, as we say. (laughs) Because I know you're new to the story, Beth's illness is an interesting thing because there are parts of it that are chronic. Like very last episode, we talked about Beth's problems with self-image, self-harm, maybe kind of the mental illnesses she's dealing with. She's also said to have what I recognize as chronic pain symptoms. She talks about not being able to do household chores without her hands getting stiff, which I recognize as juvenile arthritis, Mm -hmm. it sounds to me. But we're a few chapters away still from Beth getting scarlet fever, and that's when it really gets real. But Certainly now you picked up on Beth having what we definitely understand as social anxiety, maybe being neuroatypical compared to the rest of the sisters, being very shy, and actually connecting with a disabled boy who comes to the picnic, which kind of speaks to just the commonality there between Beth and this boy. Just wanted to clear that up for you. Also, if you have any questions for me as we go along. Yeah. Please feel very free. This is a newbies welcome podcast. Do you want to start just at the very beginning then with the post mail game? Mm-hmm. The big thing that happens here is that among the parcels that arrive, including Lori dropping uh, flowers for Marmy, because Lori's parents are deceased. His relationship with Marmy becomes very important to him. And he's always doing things for her, dropping her off little gifts. It's a very surrogate mom relationship there. So that's sweet. He loves flowers. He has a greenhouse. So it's said that there's a vase in Marmy's corner that's kept supplied by the affectionate boy. So that's Lori for you. But the real development here is the mysterious arrival of a glove because Meg left a pair over there and here is only one. And she's sure she didn't drop it in the garden, but she doesn't know why that is. And it turns out, it turns out that a romance is blooming between Meg, eldest daughter, and John Brooke, who is Lori's tutor. And that may be where the extra glove is hidden. So that's very exciting off the bat. Meg is none the wiser. Absolutely. Just completely oblivious. It's very budding at this point. There'll be a whole wedding. That's the centerpiece of every movie, of course. And then the next gift that comes in the post is a big straw hat for Joe from Lori. (laughs) And Joe says, what a sly fellow Lori is. I said I wished bigger hats were the fashion because I burn my face every hot day. He said, why am I in the fashion? Wear a big hat and be comfortable. I said I would if I had one. And he has sent me this to try me. I'll wear it for fun and show him I don't care for the fashion. And we know that 
Joe is the total tomboy, quote unquote. I interpret Joe definitely as a transmasculine character. And this really parallels stuff that Lou Alcott, the author, would say about fashion and clothing. There's a period in her letters that I was just reading where she writes about going on a trip to the mountains. She's like, everyone wears men's clothing up here. It's a free and easy fashion that really suits me. And I'm like, interesting. (laughs) And on that trip, one of the carriages breaks down. She uses one of her garters to repair it. (laughs) That's so cool. I know. It tells you everything. She's like, I'm up here in the mountains with my men's clothing and I'm just using my garters for carriage repairs. (laughs) (laughs) Which really speaks to the disregard for the trappings of conventional femininity that Lou had. And I see that here as well. I think this is very sweet because obviously Lori is thinking of Joe, but also recognizing Joe for who Joe is in a really lovely way. Right on the heels of that, Lori writes a letter to Joe inviting her to this picnic. And you mentioned this before. And this is interesting to me. There's a few occasions in this chapter, and I'm going to get into the etymology, where Joe is referred to explicitly as a fellow, or my dear fellow, mm-hmm. or a guy. And obviously your brows go up at that. And so I, I did do some digging what those words mean, and if they connoted what they seem to connote today. That is something that I wanted to ask you about, especially yes. the line where they're talking about the hat, and someone mm-hmm. says, don't make such a guy of yourself. Yes. Yeah. So Lori sends this letter. And what's interesting, he's writing to Joe, Joe alone. The letter says, Dear Joe, he's inviting her to this picnic. And he says, Brooke will go to keep us boys steady. And Kate Vaughn will play propriety for the girls. So what's interesting to me there is us boys and the girls. He's seeming to include Joe in in the category of us boys, right? Which is interesting. And then at the very end, he says, only do come, there's a good fellow, in a tearing hurry, yours ever, Lori. And later on- I said I only read this chapter once. I actually read it twice because the first time that I read it was in this really gorgeous older edition that (laughs) my roommate had. And some of the parts felt a little abrupt. And I was like, I feel like I'm missing some things. So this morning when I went back, I looked up a copy online and I was like, this is different. And it's abridged is that here it says the story in 230 pages, which was really. <laughs> I got a nasty surprise. I will get back to what we're talking about, but I got a nasty surprise recently. I was listening to the audiobook of the corrections by Jonathan Franzen, which is neither here nor there, whatever. Yeah. But I listened to it. I really liked it. And I was telling my friend, James Frankie Thomas, who's also been on the podcast and James was like, oh my God, did you like this, this, and this part? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And it turns out I had listened to an abridged audiobook of the corrections and I'm yeah. still so mad. Yeah. I feel like that's something where it should say at the top of the audiobook, this is abridged. <laughs> where you all could have come on this podcast having a third of the chapter thinking that was the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Little Women is... It's definitely very often abridged for younger audiences. Also because she wrote it in two parts. She wrote Little Women and it was a smash and her editor demanded an immediate sequel. They're essentially two books and they're often published as one volume, but sometimes you only get book one. And I hear a lot about people who grew up with part one and then grow up and are like, wait, sorry, weddings, marriage? What are you talking about? Yeah. Okay. But so at the end of Lori's letter to Joe, he says, only do come, there's a good fellow. And then later on, again, in this same chapter, when they're rowing, Joe drops 
her or, and he asks, did I hurt you, my good fellow? Which (laughs) again, struck out to me. And as you mentioned, there's also several instances here of Meg saying to Joe, you ain't going to wear that awful hat. It's too absurd. You shall not make a guy of yourself. And Joe answering, I just will though. It's capital. So shady, light and big. It will make fun. And I don't mind being a guy if uncomfortable. So I'll go first to my trusty annotated edition of Little Women by John Madison. He writes, Meg's use of guy here does not refer to Joe's tomboyishness. A guy, as she means it, is a person of grotesque appearance, especially <laughs> as a dress. What's interesting is Meg's use of the word, though, is chiefly British. But Joe's reply, I don't mind being a guy if I'm comfortable, is actually more ambiguous because at that point, guy was in American usage as a synonym for a man, a boy. The two meanings of the word are collapsing there. I found that guy was in common usage, both in the sense of, oh, I'll look a fright. I'll look a guy. Oh, the hair blew, like the wind blew my hair back. I I must look like such a guy. We'd say like, I look like a mess. I look like a fright. But then also certainly around this time, guy was also, you know, that's a guy. That is a boy. That is a man. That is a guy. That was also common. So it's interesting how the two are smushed into one here. And it's easy to see also how even the usage of looking like a guy, the examples that I found were women worried about their appearances and saying, I must look such a guy. And this is from the 1800s. So they're using it in the sense of, I look a fright, but I do have to wonder if even the meaning of in that context isn't, I look less than ladylike, right? I was just thinking that about part of the overlap in usage there comes from the fact that to look like a guy, you don't even need to be actively trying to perform masculinity. The moment that you stop really adhering to performing femininity, you start entering this gray area in the gray area, this whole other category towards masculinity which is really interesting. And that's absolutely Joe, because I I can't speak to the relative masculinity of wearing a wide-brimmed hat in in that day and age. I know that they definitely wore bonnets in this era. Lou talks about wearing bonnets. So maybe a wide-brimmed hat was actually more masculine headwear than a bonnet would be. Maybe it's all about their containment or lack thereof. Yeah, precisely. Precise, exactly. The other word that's used to describe Joe is Lori saying, there's a good health fellow. And did I hurt you, my dear fellow? And that another interesting one, because again, at the time that this was written, fellow, obviously it was being used to describe men. It was being used to describe any kind of companion or comrade, but often in the plural, that's when you'd see fellows of the society, right? But I did find some examples of fellow being used around this era, just as any good person. There's a sentence in Dickens that I found on Wiktionary that he's saying, she's a good fellow. So it wasn't necessarily exclusively for men, but it was predominantly for men. (laughs) And I think it certainly hits the ear in an interesting way in the modern era, because the notion of she's a good fellow, that probably sounds really alien to us, I think. It's fair to say. Yeah. So it's a bit ambiguous, but certainly that ambiguity is intended. Mm -hmm. It's fully intended by Lou Alcott. And I see this as a real extension of Joe's masculinity and the way that Laurie recognizes that and celebrates it, which is lovely. So, um, But it's a real contradictory of the way that I'm reading it, romantic relationship. mm -hmm 
between them, it, it's almost an extension of, of that. Or like, it, it's not Lori teasing Joe. It's very natural. Whereas today in a TV show, if a guy calls a girl <laughs> who has a crush on him, bro, then it's over. So that's a really good point. Yeah. Of course. Now if on a TV show, he says, oh, she's a good guy. We understand that to be a platonic. Yeah. But, so you're, you're already reading the Joe and Lori dynamic as romantic here. Do you want to talk more about that? What's making you think that? I think there's just this overtone of particular warmth between them and just the attention paid to them throughout the chapter. I think maybe that is me earlier knowing that at some point Beth got sick. I think I just have seen a lot of screenshots involving Timothy Chalamet that maybe have informed my reading of that. But it's also, I don't know, just the way that they interact with each other and talk to each other, them being in the same boat, them eating from the same little plate, which is really cute. But also to me kind of also goes hand in hand with Lori calling Joe fellow and all of that because it seems like less of a thing that would happen if a girl was trying to be really ladylike around the object of her affection. That's a really good point. I think that's what makes the relationship between Joe and Lori really compelling. And now I'm in a place, I'm like, I don't want to spoil you (laughs) because you have, you have this whole thing ahead of you. But certainly while we're talking about that, we may as well get into at the end in rigmarole, Lori tells this very elaborate story of peering through a head and seeing the queen of his affections picking flowers in her garden. Will you give me a rose, said he. You must come and get it. I can't come to you. It isn't proper, said she, as sweet as honey. He tried to climb over the hedge, but it seemed to grow higher and higher. Then he tried to push through, but it grew thicker and thicker, and he was in despair. So he patiently broke twig after twig till he had made a little hole through which he peeped, saying imploringly, let me in, let me in. But the pretty princess did not seem to understand, for she picked her roses quietly and left him to fight his way in. So that's what we in the business call subtext (laughs) because later on when they're playing truth Mm -hmm. which is it's just truth or dare without the dares it seems fred vaughn one of the british guys asks laurie which girl do you like best and he says joe of course and (laughs) yeah that's the the other one that i meant Mm -hmm. to mention in in my reading where that is his obvious answer and then joe's funny little reaction but it's directly preceded by him being asked who's the prettiest girl. And those are two different answers that to Lori just do not seem contradictory because they're not, but many other stories they would have been. Yeah, genuine. Literally the line is, what lady do you think prettiest, said Sally? Margaret, said Lori. Which do you like best? From Fred. Joe, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Duh. (laughs) And after that, Joe says, what silly questions you ask? And gives a disdainful shrug and seems to really shrink at the possibility of romantic. She she seems less gung-ho, it seems, about the possibility of romantic anything between her and Lori for as warm as she is. And for a little further down this page, Lori asks, what do you most wish for? And Joe returns a pair of boot lacings, guessing and defeating his purpose. He says, not a true answer. You must say what you really do want most. And she goes, genius. Don't you wish you could give it to me, Lori? And slyly smiles in his disappointed face. So it's something is taking place here between Lori's really heartbreaking story about the knight trying to get through the hedge to the the pretty princess and the the hedges it grows as he climbs and the brambles get thicker and he's crying let me in let me in Um, (laughs) compared to joe's really being snide about when he's essentially sliding the do you have a crush on me check yes or no (laughs) across the across the desk yeah yeah what i can't tell Mm -hmm. from 
my window into this so far is whether Joe is really playing hard to get or if she's just very oblivious as someone who is very mm-hmm. oblivious myself. But either way, <laughs> I I don't know. The the dynamic between them is just yeah. so funny to me. I love them. Yeah. And I I mean it's it might be worth talking about the real world dynamic that inspired it. Lori is based on a couple of relationships that she had with young men in her life. One is Alfie Whitman, no relation to Walt Whitman. And Alfie Whitman was someone that she met in community theater. And they had a relationship that seemed to be very open to Lou's gender nonconformity. Lou's letters to Alfie Whitman are some of the places where she's most open about, I say she, and it sucks to use she, (laughs) but this is where Lou will be describing herself in the third person as a gentleman a man. She confides in Alfie when she goes to a costume party dressed as a man and everyone thinks she is a man and she's just thrilled about that. She's very affectionate with Alfie. They can be a bit homoerotic at times. She's like, let's you and I be sailors and go stow away on a ship, digging into boy-boy fantasies a little bit. I don't think they were ever romantically involved. And actually this is a bit sad, but there's one really effusive letter that Lou sends after the publication of Little Women to Alfie, where she's congratulating him on his wife and his child and just being incredibly affectionate and saying, oh, I just wish you could be a boy again and come and be with me and we could just be our old ragtag selves. And he never wrote to her and she never wrote to him again, which is heartbreaking. (laughs) And then, so Alfie was one inspiration. The other one was this Polish young man she met when she was in Europe named Laddie. Ladislas, and he was dying of consumption. And they they met in Vevey in France. He'd gone to get well because taking the waters in France was something that people did back in the day to ease symptoms. And they were romantically involved. She writes about kissing him and she kept a a pressed rose from Vevey for the rest of her life to remember Laddie by. So Laurie is sort of a composite of those two who were both cases straddling the line between romantic, platonic, and also furtive, short-lived, or somebody else married him so Uh, that's just a little bit of background for you and for listeners as well the inspirations behind the joe and Lori dynamic yeah that's so interesting i had never made the connection between what i know about lisa may alcott what i have learned about the author largely (laughs) just through your tweets and writing and the text itself but that makes so so much sense I think is actively in this moment expanding my understanding of autofiction and metafiction right now it's just re-entered into literary twitter discussion just as is autofiction over thing and to me it's <laughs> a very immediate new york alt writing thing and now I'm like suddenly I know that I'm going to be up at 2 a.m. doing a deep dive on the earliest instances of autofiction yeah if Little Women isn't autofiction I don't know what is yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's incredibly pulled from life here I'd also be remiss to say toward the end of her life there's a quote that I've repeated a lot on this show Lou was being interviewed by this journalist Louise Chandler Moulton and Lou Alcott said I'm more than half persuaded that I am by some freak of nature a man's soul put into a woman's body (laughs) and Louise Chandler Moulton was interviewing her and asked why do you think that and Lou Alcott said well for one thing I've been in love in my life with ever so many pretty girls and never once the least little bit with any man and she may have literally been flirting with her interviewer which owns that's very like 
boss move there. She did have a couple of, like I, I mentioned Laddie, but probably for good reason. And based on what we know about Lou's own statements of that nature, a lot of people read Joe's rebuffing of Lori in this chapter mm-hmm. as proto-lesbian maybe, or just she's simply not attracted to Lori, right? Something that I've seen and really love in recent Little Women adaptations is Joe coming out as a lesbian, which I adore. Even that's complicated, I think, by the way that Lori, like we've talked about Lori being kind of a trans femme figure throughout this book as well, and really wanting to be one of the sisters. So it's it's interesting. It's very, it's very complicated. Yeah. This angle is coming from a complete lack of information about the understanding and acceptance of queerness and gender stuff in this time. But it also feels to me like the possibility of there being that rebuffing because Joe in so many ways identified as a boy and mm-hmm. not seeing the possibility of that being true and also having a crush on another boy and defaulting to keeping at arm's length flirtationship because of that. And now that's another rabbit hole that I'm going to go down. I love the way you express that because I think you put into words something I've been thinking around for a really long time, which is why Joe can really take such pleasure in this boy-boy affection and yet really bridal when any hint of the knight and the queen rears its head because she's like that's like that's not what this is right I think for me it might be why when I was younger attention from straight boys and men really just like it felt uncomfortable to me I it never I never enjoyed it I was just kind of like instinctively like "Eh." um (laughs) but the two I dated two boys when I was a teenager one when I was around 13 and then one when I was around 17 and both of them later came out as gay (laughs) I very distinctly remember reading about the later one on your blog. Yeah. In fact, I will not expose him, but um, he and I actually recently like reconnected and he was like, yeah, when I I heard that you transitioned and I was like, that makes so much sense. (laughs) What he said was even when I was straight, I wasn't really. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to look back on those teenage relationships and be like, I was not comfortable with male attention at all. But then I would just throw myself into these really tight knit friendships that grew into more than that with boys who later came out as gay. <laughs> yeah. The same below the surface understanding among teenagers and so many different dynamics, like the same reason that a lot of queer kids flock together into the same little cliques, but none of them are out until years later and then they reunite and are like yeah we all that didn't happen by accident that sort of subtextual understanding I can definitely read that into this relationship whether it's because of them not seeing the totality of possibility there of those two things being able to be true but also maybe Joe being scared of losing this really special friendship that to her maybe feels like two boys being best friends and not wanting to lose that by introducing or acting upon the possible romance. Yeah, I think you're nail on the head there. And it's really interesting and really fun that you're getting all that from just this chapter. And it then- might come from the fact that I'm doing this podcast with you and it's tapping <laughs> into the archive of our own fan fiction part of my brain that has just been so long taught to really dig deeper into those readings. 
But oh yeah, coming from a fan fiction background as well. One part that just stuck out to me as funny and endearing was Joe making Fred uh, own up to cheating, tying in with her self-admitted short temper and my immediate kinship. That is the kind of thing of she has strong will die on any hill energy to me. And I really loved that scene. This chapter felt like, and maybe all the chapters are like this, but it felt like such a such an enticement to find out more about every single character because Alcott really nailed depicting each of their dispositions and in parts in her lives with a sentence or two at a time because there there's so much ground to cover here. Yeah, she juggles a very large cast very deftly in this chapter. Yeah, is the whole book this same distance and interweaving of all of the characters or is there usually more focus on one or two there's definitely an overarching plot but certain chapters will focus more on one sister than the other there are beth centric chapters there's amy's day at school usually everyone comes back home gathers as a family but it's not like joe is the protagonist and everyone else is a sideshow it's very much an ensemble piece mm-hmm. Adaptations of Little Women certainly live or die on how good Joe is. She gets the most focus. She just is the most prominent character. But the book certainly gives a lot of attention to all of the other sisters, all of their interior lives, their dynamics. There's an insular world, though. This playing with British foreigners is a bit of an odd thing for them, which mm-hmm. it seems like you might have already guessed. It's, even the addition of Laurie earlier in the novel is rocks their little insular sister world. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they have this friend next door neighbor. She really is good at juggling every different character's motivations, feelings, what they're up to. This chapter is maybe an especially rich example because the Meg and John Brooke romance is blooming quietly, just as Joe and Lori's relationship is getting more complex. And we get this lovely moment of Beth coming out of her shell a little bit to bond with this disabled boy. They really hit it off. Amy, I don't did, did Amy make much of an impression on you this chapter or? Honestly, not really. Yeah. There's not a ton of Amy. <laughs> Yeah, Amy, Amy's the youngest sister. Amy does have her moments, but Amy's big moment in this chapter is when they're all getting ready to go to this picnic. Amy hates the way her nose looks, so she puts a clothespin on her nose. Yeah. <laughs> they wake up and everyone laughs at Amy with her clothespin on. Yeah. If you watch the 94 version, you will see Kirsten Dunst as Amy with the clothespin on her nose. Um, oh, man. I think that whole scene, which I think I mentioned earlier, is just so cute and telling. And I think that's the one that's introduced with when the sun came up, what he saw was... <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, through the window, which I think is part of what surprised me just in terms of how much of a ensemble thing it was, which I guess shouldn't have surprised me being that I know that it's about sisters and all of that, but just, yeah, yeah, Yeah. this charming look into a house instead of a closer narration from within it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No one's really hogging the spotlight here. The sun is the spotlight and the sun is narrating, which is a very fun touch. And then the other thing you mentioned was the scene where Joe is really pissed off about this guy cheating at croquet and has is like about to fight him and Joe and Laura's like, walk away, walk away. This is coming off of just a few chapters ago. There was a scene where, again, I don't want to spoil anything for you. And it's so fun to talk about this and not spoil you. I really want you to know it's so fun to talk around this stuff. But there's a scene just a few chapters earlier where one character really aggravates Joe, does something heinous to Joe, and Joe freaks out and gets really angry, but to the point where she almost endangers another person's life in a very serious way. So she has a whole thing of like, okay, I need to get better. (laughs) I need to get my temper under control. And here it seems like 
she's taking that to heart. And she has her anger, but she's like, I need to just stomp off into the woods and freak out and I will come back cool as a cucumber. But that's how I'm going to deal with my anger instead of attacking someone. I'm beginning to suspect that my initial, I feel like I'm a Joe, is only going to strengthen as I read more instead of pull away from that. Mm -hmm. Just based on that Mm -hmm. little summary. (laughs) Well, so now the real question, I guess, is what team in the Kurt Hummel ship wars of 2010-2011, what team was Joe on? Now, what, was she a claner? Was she in the cum canoe? Or, I mean, Dark Horse Kurtovsky? I forgot about the canoe. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure because I think, and this now is just me reading myself into my reading show. Whichever side she landed on, she would have been at the forefront and one of the ones like causing problems and stubbornly sticking to her guns. Man. Yeah, which was really both of us. I mean, that yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is Joe to a T. That is certainly Joe in this chapter. Although I don't think any of us were taking time out in the woods or counting to ten. <laughs> <laughs> it is nice that Lori is on Joe's side enough that she does get proven right. She gets the admission. He's like, "Yeah, I cheated at croquet." And she's like, "That's it. That's all I needed. I'm out." We covered a lot of the things that stuck out to me, and mostly now I'm just excited to go back read the book, catch up on the podcast and (laughs) fully taken. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Claudia, it's been a pleasure having you here. Claudia's mom is currently battling cancer and her family could really use your financial support. So it would be so lovely if you could go to gofundme.com slash F slash help dash Claudia dash conquer dash cancer. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Go there, read more about Claudia's amazing mom, make a donation. That would be lovely. Yeah. Claudia. Thank you so much, Peyton. That's so, awesome. so fine. For clarity, mm-hmm. the link says that because my mom's name is also Claudia. Yeah. I, I really, really appreciate that, man. Thank you. There'll be a link in the show notes, head over there to learn more. And Claudia, where can people find you online? So right now I'm in a little lapse with writing. I'm working on a lot of newsletter and zine type things, but at the moment, the best place to find me is just at Claudia posting on Twitter. That is my handle and my website is probably linked therein, but really that's just the main hub right now. Yeah. That's where you want to find Claudia. And it's where you want to learn that Claudia is in the arcade fire pit for like the fifth straight day and is Win Butler's new best friend. <laughs> that's where you'll get tweets such as what I was tweeting from the secret Bowery shows. When Butler and I just yelled all of paper planes by MIA at each other. I don't know what my life is anymore. <laughs> that was a very fun week to witness vicariously. You're really living the dream, I gotta say. And I am your host, Peyton Thomas. As always, you can find me online at PeytonThomas.ca. And now that Elon Musk failed on his promise to buy Twitter. I'm back there, baby. Twitter.com slash Peytonology. You can also buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Leave a rating or a review if you enjoyed it and tell your friends. Welcome them into the Joe's Boys fold. All right. Thank you so much, Claudia. This was really lovely and amazing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I do hope you read more and enjoy. Yeah. Thank you so much. And bye.